I gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. that. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, talking about B2B marketing lessons from The Bear with help of special guest, VP of Brand Marketing at Lightcast. JP, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Excited to chat about marketing, content marketing and brand at Lightcast. We're going to be talking about the bear and talking about your background and everything in between. So let's get started. Why did you pick the bear? Oh, man, there are so many reasons. I know, Ian, you may not have seen every episode you divulged. So I'm going to try to do no spoilers, but like it's going to be tough, dude. But okay, so here's why I picked the bear. I picked the bear because I have always been enamored with the restaurant world. What's that ticking? Wait list. Minute somebody no-shows or cancels, we pull somebody up. How'd they get here that fast? I'll go send a car. Gangster, okay. This shit is crazy. How do you do this all day? I need you to stand in that corner and get the out of my way for one minute. Bye. I have a business background. I was fortunate enough uh, to go to the University of Pennsylvania and uh, study business at the Wharton uh, undergraduate school. And I just don't know how they do it. Like, I don't understand how they figure out what people are going to order for the week because everything, you know, is fresh and it spoils. And like, it feels like it's a big psychological game. Uh, Like, you don't know who the people are. You don't know what they're going to order. You don't know how it's going to work out. But I've almost never been to a restaurant in my life and have them say, oh, we don't have that or we ran out. So I've always been intrigued. Uh, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a foodie per se, but I, I'm enamored by the industry. And so when I saw the show pop up, I was like, this is awesome. I also was a, a huge fan of Shameless. And so the star of the bear was a dynamic character in that show. So yeah, my wife and I just started watching and we got super hooked immediately. So the reason why I haven't watched yet is that my wife was a chef in a previous life and worked in restaurants for a long, long time. And so this is like, it's like watching, you know, uh, since I was in the army, it's like watching a war movie with me in the room. It's like, I'm just gonna, I like, I can't turn off the like, eh, it just doesn't really happen sort of thing. So it can't be a, a couple watch with us. And so then I gotta make time for myself. Um, but that's okay, because we're gonna get super deep into it today anyways. Just to foreshadow, I'm really excited to talk to you about one specific aspect of why I love it so much. And it's referential to your wife's former, 
I, I love that you said her in her former life. I'm like, she did, she get reincarnated? That's like, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely don't want to come back as a restauranteur. That's that's for no, sure. No. Um, but yeah, no, we'll, she's talk, a, we'll talk about that in a bit. She's yeah. a physical therapist now, so it just just a second second career. But it really working in restaurants and changing careers is truly a life change. But we'll get into that. So, zooming out, tell us about your role at Lightcast. Yeah, so I joined about eight or nine months ago at this company that, to be honest with you, I'd never heard of before in my life. I kind of had wandered through a bunch of different industries throughout my career. I spent some time in entertainment, a bunch of time in tech. I actually started my career in retail. And I got really intentional about what I wanted my next step to be. I made a list of all the things that I wanted. And one of the things was I wanted to go somewhere that was putting good out into the world. And as I like, you know, did my search across the net and on LinkedIn, I happened upon this company called Lightcast. And so we do labor market data and analytics, which sounds maybe to some people dry. But when I read the mission statement and it talked about how Lightcast through the data that they provide to educators and employers and community leaders is hoping to solve the equity disparity that exists in the job market, I'm like, this is something I could latch on to. This is something that's important to me. You know, be, being a person of color, the, the son of immigrants from Bolivia and Haiti who came here in the 60s and 70s, I know that some of the challenges they faced in finding jobs and, and getting an education, unfortunately, are still happening to people today. And so I was like, wow, this is a really cool mission you know, for a, for a company and in fact, Lightcast, the reason I'd never heard of it, at least and probably many people haven't heard of it, is it was, it's, it's sort of new. It's sort of new, but old. A little bit like your, your wife being reincarnated. It was two companies. And KKR, which is a big private equity firm, bought both of those companies, smashed them together. And we actually just celebrated our year anniversary as Lightcast before it was you know called other things. And so they needed somebody to come in and help steward the new brand to like put it out into the marketplace and make people understand what we what we stand for and so that's why they brought me in and I'm I'm super excited about the job and the people that I work with and the mission that Lightcast is you know trying to bring about into the universe which is to create a job market that works for everyone and everyone you know like across the board so pretty cool and what is your remit as VP of brand? What do you oversee? So, yeah, I've got, as often happens in marketing, uh, like I just, I have like a hodgepodge. So I oversee the the PR, so all of our comms. I also oversee a bit of the content, specifically all of our thought leadership work. Then recently, I actually bolted on a bit of the research team that had previously been separated from the marketing group, but we thought it makes sense to have researchers in the thought leadership. So like as we're orchestrating and writing, yet we have the data to back up all of our assertions. I also run our social. And then we've got a group that is most focused on like our top tier events, but also we look after our, our manifestation at other people's conferences and events. So a little bit of everything. Okay, and so speaking of connecting 
uh, jobs to everybody in the world. One job that we're going to talk about today is working in restaurants as it relates to the bear, Meredith. What the heck is the bear? So the bear is a show on Hulu, and it's about this award-winning chef who leaves his Michelin star restaurant to go back to his hometown of Chicago after his brother passes away, and he's taking over his brother's sandwich shop. I know who you are. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm, I mean, you're the most excellent CDC at the most excellent restaurant in the entire United States of America. So what are you doing here, I guess? Making sandwiches. And so he's really, like, struggling to keep the boat afloat, right? To keep his rowdy new staff and messy kitchen running and take care of all the debt that his brother sort of left him in. Um, while also trying to process all of the grief around his brother's suicide and and just sort of processing that. And a lot of people who have worked, ever worked in food service, worked in a professional kitchen, have said that this is really a realistic depiction of what it's actually like doing that, working in a professional kitchen. And so at any moment, it feels like it's going to fall apart. You are in the weeds, you're struggling, you're stressed. It deals with the health inspections and payroll and dirty floors and plumbing, all of the tiny details that really make it feel real. And you know, the, uh, the produce bill is due. You know, and the power comes in, and uh, I can't build enough of a parachute. You know, e even if we got this place packed, that's only like a week of survival cash. Exhausting, listen to this. And it stars Jeremy Allen White as Carmi Brizado, the main character. Eben Moss Backrack as the restaurant manager, who is also his late brother's best friend. Ayo Edebiri, who's the new sort of sous chef, and this hints at the changes that Carmi is trying to make at his brother's sandwich shop, right? This kind of like down-home sandwich shop, and he's having her come in stage at his new restaurant, even though it's not a, you know, Michelin star place. Okay, so um, as you may have heard, I would be, I am, I am the, I am the Sue. Like hierarchy. More just like a regular chill archy. Uh, it's more about dividing labor. So like, because I'm the Sue, right? Like I just uh, follow orders, even if it leads to tension and uh, chaos and resentment and ultimately doesn't work. And so he's bringing in the brigade or brigade system and people are, you know, fighting against all of those changes. But the show was created by Christopher Storer for FX. Um, and it has two seasons out on Hulu. The first season received 13 Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Comedy Series. So it's done very, very well, has gotten lots of critical acclaim and praise. So JP, what makes this show remarkable? Well, there are many things. There are many things. And, uh, you know, like, obviously, we're, we're here to, to not only talk entertainment, though, you know, we could, but like connect it back to marketing. And so... Yeah, I, I wrote a few things down about why it's dynamic and interesting. But the, the first one that was intriguing to me, which is relative to the show and, and the characters therein, but also to B2B marketing, is just about like focusing on the audience. And so like Meredith said, you take this guy who was working in like Sweden at this like amazing restaurant, like, you know, white tablecloth and you know, like everybody's in a suit and blah, blah, blah. Chefs, table, 38, two people. Hey. Table, 23, four people. Hey. Broken soft chef. And you put them, you know, on, in Chicago at this like random sandwich shop where like everything 
looks like, you know, it really needs to be cleaned super thoroughly by someone like immediately. But he he adapts, right? Like he he goes from making whatever the hell he was making in Sweden, you know, like caviar and lobster and, you know, whatever, fresh cod to making these sandwiches. But he knows that the audience who is coming and sitting at the counter at the beef, that's what the restaurant is called. Like they just want that sandwich. And he's like, I'm going to continue to make this sandwich because I know this audience loves it. I'm going to make the fries and I'm going to make them amazing. And he just understood that like I walked into something and I can't change it immediately. Like he knows that he wants to improve it. We can't change it immediately. Like the people are still expecting what they are expecting. We want to change this restaurant, right? Right. I will dial business. You are everything else. Okay. Yes. Okay, chef. Great. Let's go. And so, yeah, for, for us as marketers and for Carmi and, and, and the staff at the beef is like so important that in those first few episodes, it wasn't about changing anything. It was just about like really focusing and listening and understanding the audience. Like, what do they want? What do they come back for? You know, like, how do I continue to serve them that? And so, yeah, that was super interesting to me. And I, I, I've never worked in restaurants. I've been a DJ for a long time. So I've been around bartenders and servers and whatever else. But yeah, it was just intriguing to take this guy who's like, we're going to this amazing place. And then you put him in kind of a shithole. And like, what is he going to do with it? But he still respected the audience. He still respected the customers that were sitting at the counter and and eating the sandwiches and the chips, you know? Yeah, there's the rags to riches stories, and then there's the sort of riches to rags stories. And like we we covered Shits Creek on a different episode, and that has such an allure to us. Like, and I sort of call a lot of the stuff that we see from like billions and and succession as sort of like wealth porn is like, and it's kind of what like the Kardashians is, and like all this stuff. We just love like seeing rich people be rich. And then we also love seeing rich people become poor, right? And so that sort of archetype to say, like, it's such a simple story to say, like, as soon as, uh, you know, and, 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 and again, this is why I haven't watched the show. It's because every single thing I see about it is that it's such a real depiction of how restaurants work. Ibra, make sandwiches. Don't stop making fucking sandwiches. Yes, sir. I'm going to make three sections, okay? They're going to be wet, hot, and sweet. All right, I'm going to take green tape, make those sections. Louis, yes, I want sir. you to get the sandwiches, put them I'm in the corresponding sure. section. And my wife is like, and for that reason, I am out. So there's a lesson in there somewhere too about making content that you can watch with your significant other. But but I think that like the story is just so crystal clear that when you see the log line, when you see the trailer, when you see that stuff, you immediately get it. Oh, this is someone who's one of the world's best expert at their craft and their family pulls them back to where they were, to where they once came from. And that classic story of, I have made it, I have escaped, I have got away from my family, but you can never escape your family and they're going to pull you back in. is just so, it's such a common storytelling technique. And it's something that like, you know, we'll get into this later, that B2B marketers like rarely ever use, right? We rarely use our families in our marketing, even though they're such a huge part of our work life. It's true. It's true. I think the other point is that you're you're right. Sometimes people think of it as a trope, right? Like, oh, well, that kind of story again, where like the rags, rags, rich, rich. But the fact is that those things work for a reason, right? Like they're they're compelling, and and I think for showrunners, for writers, for marketers, like sometimes we do ourselves a disservice. Like we think, oh, I've seen this 
already. I'm not going to do it. You know, like, but you know, like you, you kind of move on, you know, because, you know, like I was actually telling my team this a, a couple of days ago as we were like building pages, you have written 17 drafts of this web page before it goes up. And so by the time it goes up, you're sick of it and you're ready to change it immediately. The audience has never seen it before, right? Like, and the average person who comes to a web page, what they stay for a minute and a half, right? Like, so they're not going deep into all the individual words and the you know, pictures and like how you've architected it. So like, just let it sit, like let it breathe and you know, and be kind to yourself and to your audience by just letting them have it. You know, like I, I saw recently a post on TikTok that compared the storyline of the bear to another show. And, and the emphasis was kind of the same, you know, that you just articulated in, it was like, Oh, I've seen this before, right? Like, Oh, like, you know, low down person comes back and the uncle is going to help and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that other one worked too. Yeah. I mean, it's doc Hollywood is like, you know, awesome for Asian. I remember when avatar came out and they were like, they're like, well, this is just basically like Pocahontas, but just like slightly different. I'm like, yeah, except with like a billion dollars worth of CGI or whatever they put into that movie. Not not billion, but like a hundred million dollars worth of CGI. And you're like, yeah, no, it turns out that story is pretty popular for a reason. But anyways, back to the bear. So the other thing that for me, jumping out as someone who hasn't yet seen the show, so it's just relying on marketing and what people are talking about, is so much of Chicago. And Chicago is a massive place. It's absolutely humongous everybody and their brother has been to Chicago. If you grew up anywhere in the Midwest, you probably moved to Chicago at some point, and everyone has been to a sandwich shop in Chicago. So this idea that is so familiar, which is like person moves back home to Chicago and takes over a sandwich shop, even though we're Michelin star, like we just all immediately are like, okay, I've been to a sandwich shop in Chicago and I totally know how that feels. And like, I wonder how many people who watch the show have actually been to a sandwich shop in Chicago and looked behind the counter and thought all of these things. That restaurant, it has, and it, it does mean a lot to people. It means a lot to me. And so the, just the idea, they're like, what if there was a Michelin star chef that was working behind the counter? Like, it's just, you're in. Like, it's just such an easy premise to understand. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm from the New York area and I'm a huge hip hop fan. And and I remember, you know, like, you know, listening to the music in the late 80s and 90s, like when I or was going through my formative years, I didn't realize how many references I understood in the music simply because I was from New York. But there are yeah. so many rappers talking about like, this is the train and this is the street and this is the neighborhood and blah, 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 blah. And like, I knew all that stuff. And then, you know, I went to college and, you know, like afterwards and I started talking to people who are from the Midwest, you know, from the Bay. And they're like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about. You know, like, I don't know what Nas means by Queensbridge projects. And I'm like, oh, like this is this place. And so, and, but there is something about, being able to write and create content that allows people to put themselves in it. The oven's too dry. You need to fill a baking sheet with water, put it on the oven floor, throw in another batch, okay? okay I'm gonna do my Just job. Just do it. This is your brother's house. I was running it fine without you. Why didn't you leave it to you then? You know, that's that's cool. You know, like, I think it's it's why I, I love hip-hop so much is because I did ride all those trains. I did go to those neighborhoods. Like, I, I saw myself in it. And so, yeah, kudos to to the writers of the bears for understanding that like, if you're going to do something in Chicago, you know, like that could capture the tourism mindset 
yeah, make it a sandwich shop. You know, like everybody went there. It's kind of, I guess it would be kind of like, you know, doing a Philly cheesesteak shelf. You know, right. like, oh, yeah. If you go Philly, that's what you did, you know. Speaking of the creation of the bear, Meredith, tell us a little bit more about the creation of the bear. Oh, yeah. So you all mentioned that it's based in Chicago, right? And it and it does feel real because it's based on a real place, not just it being in Chicago, but the restaurant is also based on, well, in the show, it's called the Beef of Chicagoland. In real life, it's called Mr. Beef, and it's a real sandwich shop in River North neighborhood in Chicago. And the characters are even based loosely on personas that the creator, Chris Storer, would see around there, like even like dudes hanging out outside smoking cigarettes like he was like these are the people that just like kind of hang around the area maybe not even in the shop so there's so much authenticity there so I also like clearly did tons of research talking to chefs and everything like that housekeeping chefs again what the f- are you saying anyone understand what he's saying housekeeping means you have to clean your stations because this place is f-ing gross one thing that really resonated with me because I did, I have worked in restaurants, was he said, all the cooks and dishwashers are always under such pressure inside that the minute they step outside, it's hard to even relate to the life you're missing. And I think for anyone who's ever worked like a double and then stepped outside in the middle of the night, you don't know what time it is, but going from like the bright lights and the noise of the restaurant out into like the quiet of like the parking lot behind the building and being like, your shift is over. You're like, I don't know what time it is. I don't know where I am. But like, you know, whatever I just went through was, you know, you're so in the moment. This job's insane. You know, it can go from chill to unchill in a second, but you got to stay ahead on your work. That's just that. And then it takes a while for you to kind of reacclimate to being outside of the restaurant. So that kind of like idea and that sort of mentality is really infused into the whole show. A couple other things that really make it feel real is that Storr grew up around mental illness and addiction. And he actually had a friend who died by suicide shortly before he started working on the show. So a lot of those like real experiences are really worked into the storyline. In the first episode, so I was recently watching the first episode and I was like, this show is wound up so tight that like you step into it and you're like, oh my God, what am I watching? Smaller fry scoops today, chef. Behind. Not system. What is this system? Michael's system. That's Carmen, there's the girl. Yeah, yeah, that's Sydney. She's helping us out today. Michael's system makes no, no sense. Something. I'm saying something. Marcus, I say something. You are my favorite bitch. Oh, your English is getting tight, Zeb. You kidnap a ship captains? Your mom teach me doing sex. Oh, that's not cool. <laughs> that's how you do it. <laughs> And Story even was like, I needed to throw viewers into it. He said it was the only way to explain how a real restaurant works. And specifically for the character Richie's part. So that's the sandwich shop manager who's also his late brother's best friend. So lots of relationships there. So Story said that Evan Moss Backrock, who plays Richie, he said he just came out of the gate at 100 miles an hour. And he even admits, I know it's hard to watch. At the French Laundry, you know how much time we'd spend? Fuck your French Laundry. Stupid fucking name. All right, then I know Oh, and f- your Noma too. System name. So it is that thing where, like, you're stepping into it and you're just like, things are happening so fast. People are using all sorts of, like, restaurant jargon. And all of that is super, super intentional to, like, grab the viewer and be like, you're in it now. Like, you know how a restaurant functions. And even if it's hard to watch, it's hard not to look away too. I have a firm belief that there's two types of people in this world. There's people who've worked in restaurants and there's people who think they could run a restaurant. And like, I (laughs) swear 
that that's part of the reason why this show is so popular is because all the people who work in restaurants who see it are like, oh my God, that's how it is. Chefs, go to the walk-in, get all the cooked beef, slice it, put it in jus, get it now, get all 32 chickens, get them searing, roasting, tina, sausages, burgers, hot dogs, everything on the grill, fire everything yes, right fucking now. Yes, 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 Contribute in any way humanly possible. Yes, get out of my fucking way. And the people who haven't are getting that glimpse of like, and especially with like all the reality TV show that's out and all the like baking shows and all this other stuff for like, I could run a restaurant and I, I mean, I definitely don't, I, I know I could not, but I've talked to my wife like at length about this because she knew so many people who started restaurants and did all that stuff. And I've asked her like a million questions about restaurants and about like how they operate and all those different things. And what's so interesting to me is how many amateurs get into it and start restaurants and they don't know a single thing that they're doing and they try to hire and do this stuff. So I think another thing that just like, I think feels really cool about this show is sort of like taking this elemental thing that people want to be, whether it's like cheers or whether it's, you know, the, the, whatever the drunken clam or whatever, those bars and restaurants that you feel a part of in, in TV shows that you want to visit and you want to be a part of, or the ones that remind you of the place from hometown that you want to be like a part of that. And you want to be the popular person and know all the servers and, and know the bartender and get the free shots and do all that stuff. And you feel so special. You're like, oh, I wish I had that, that sort of thing. And so watching shows about restaurants and TV, I think just it endears people to the characters like that much more. I did want to, I wanted to follow up actually on something that Meredith said earlier and and we talked about that I think it's about the production of the show and not about the characters in the show itself. But yeah, the reason that it took off was because all of these folks who had worked at restaurants were like, yep, that's exactly how it is. And for me, you know, like, you know, again, talking about like my craft and and, and marketing you know, it's just so important to speak authentically to an audience. Like, so the the thing that started to happen, you know, like, you know, how there, there are some actors and characters who like, they have a, a something that like people now scream at them from across the street. So Ian, in this one, because Carmi, who's the main character, brought in this like very, you know, regimented structure, he calls everybody chef. Don't wipe your hands on your apron, chef. Chef. I refer to everybody as chef because it's a sign of respect. But like the people in the sandwich shop, they're like, what, what, you know, like, why is he calling everybody chef? And, and so now that's what, you know, Jeremy Allen White, the the character gets screamed out across the street, like, yeah, chef, you know, like, and so, and, you know, it says all the things that your wife would know, like behind and corner and blah, blah, blah. So now all of this vernacular that only, it used to be only restaurant people knew is now into pop culture and, I think that it's so important to do that, you know, like when when we're thinking about writing anything. But like for me, in like in my craft right now at Lightcast, I'm talking to people who look at like data and labor, like and they're thinking about the job market and economics all the time. And if you don't talk like them, then they know that you don't know what you're talking about, you know. And I remember back when I worked at IBM we canceled and reworked a whole campaign because we'd done all this due diligence and we're going to like put some messaging out to the developer audience, 
you know, like coders. And, and then we, like at the last minute, we're like, you know what, we should show this to some developers before we put it out into the world. And so we invited them over for pizza and a chat. And they're like, yeah, that's not how we talk. You know, like that's how the movies show people that that's how we talk, but that's not really authentically how we talk. And so we used all their feedback to rework the campaign. And it's obvious that somebody or many people on the writing staff at the Bay are worked at restaurants because they just get it. So it's funny you mentioned the, you know, chef behind and all that sort of stuff. So A, we totally use that in my house, the knife behind and, you know, all that stuff. It's great, by the way, makes your kitchen life move a lot better. But one of the things that that is so interesting when I went into this world myself, because I used to, you know, sit at the corner of the bar and she would work a shift and there was a bar next door and so the bar was closed. So I would just would go sit at the bar that wasn't even open yet and like all day while she was like working and, and stuff like that. And I mean, it is just a totally different universe and they have a totally different language and how you do that stuff is is super different. So that authenticity is like, is critical if you want to win over that that group, right? The bear, all right? We have equipment that works. That's a great start, everybody. Zero. Then we have a deep, clean, very, very deep, clean and drywall insulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fridge is so fucked yeah, yeah, yeah. The fryer is fucked. The fryer is fucked. That's 5K right there. Fryer. Shit fryer. And then another 10 for the correct fryer. And the oven is scary. That's another 10. Okay, good. All right, so we got 20. 30. 30. And if you, if you, you know, if you don't really care, if you want to do the Grey's Anatomy version of it, right, like that's fine too. And it probably will be really commercially successful, but you won't get the diehards. And in today's day and age, where the diehards are so vocal, where it's like, if you get it right, those little Easter eggs, those little things where you don't have to explain it. You can just do a little offhand comment, a little Easter egg, a little note in there that someone will stop, rewind 10 seconds backwards, record it on their phone, be like, you know, and and post it on Instagram or wherever. Like, it's just such a more valuable currency to get the little details right. And like, you know, we always talk about here at Caspian, like there's no traffic on the extra mile. If you go the extra mile, your audience always notices, right? Like they always do. And it's that extra 10%, those 10% finishes that that take it from not remarkable, aka I'm not going to tell anyone about this, to remarkable, which is like, oh my gosh, this show gets me. You know, what's, what's so cool about what you just said is that they kind of doubled up on that insight in this show because they did it through the writing and the marketing, but then they also did it inside the show. And that's why I think it's so brilliant. So, and also a lesson, you know, for, for marketers in general and B2B marketers, especially, and people who are brand folks like me, you know, like, so this guy, Carmi, like, you know, he comes from the, this Michelin star restaurant comes, you know, to this like little sandwich shop and he elevates everything in the sandwich shop, right? He elevates the people, he elevates the menu, he elevates like the surroundings, he elevates the process. Say it back, please, chefs. Okay, we got four beefs here, we need them out front, please. I love this tempo though. Let's keep it up, let's take it up another level. More urgency, please. Make your hands, please. Hands. And, and it's like, if you do go that extra mile, if you choose to elevate, in my world, your brand, you know, like you, 
you have to elevate your craft in order to elevate the brand, right? Like you have to like get the the best writers or like, you know, write a really good brief and, you know, like, and, and revise that web page over and over and over again, or, you know, like, you know, like really think through what your manifestation is going to be at that conference. Because like you just said, Ian, the audience notices, you know, like, and, and it's super important for us to do that when audiences can pick everything apart the way that they can now and do. And I love it. I love it. It's, it, it should be the case that everyone is scrutinizing, you know, what you do because it's their livelihood. You know, that's the other thing about working at Lightcast. It's, you know, like we, we, we deal in data and numbers and like all this stuff that seems abstract a lot. But I, I always remind my team, it's like, this is about people, right? Like these are jobs that people have. This is salaries that people have, right? Like people who have a mortgage and a car payment and, you know, like are t- maybe taking care of not only their kids, but their parents. And so it's, it's important to remember that. And so, yeah. Like, go the extra mile because the audience deserves it. My my big piece of advice, based off of not having watched The Bear, but again, I see it on my social media, like, literally every day. And so taking that piece from it is you have to know the language of your audience. And my take on this is, and I've hosted, like, thousands of podcast episodes, lots of them one-on-one. But where I've seen really, really good insights is when you have a moderator with two guests where they can start speaking the language to each other. And it's a really good way, because a lot of times we do customer interviews one-on-one. But if you have the time to do a customer interview with two customers together and let them go off of each other, you, you, you can see them sort of like dip into that conversationalism using acronyms. They're not going to be shy about using acronyms that only they know. They're not going to be shy about doing those sort of things. And then you can sort of like prod that conversation and get a lot more out of it rather than purely a, a Q&A. And then you can just kind of every every so often just say, oh, is that the same thing that you've seen at your company? And it's a really good way to get authentic language out of customers that might sometimes be a little bit more tricky if you don't know the questions that are the right ones to ask. Yeah, it's true. There is something about watching two people who have a shorthand, you know, that yeah. that pulls you in, you know, like, it, it, I mean, if done well, right? Like, sometimes people are talking, and you're like, I don't know what those motherfuckers are talking about at all. You know, like, they're using way too many acronyms and saying too much stuff that is flying over my head. But it is cool. It's cool to see, especially people who are talking at a really erudite level about something. You know, like just go go in, yeah, super. Fun. That's why you never play outburst with siblings, because then they're <laughs> just going to have the same shorthand for everything. That's right, that's right. Yeah, or charades. You're like, you know, they draw like half a line or or, or a pictionary. Or they draw half a line. Oh yeah, that's that thing that you used to draw when you were five, and I know exactly that that's a bird. You know, like uh, not fair. Yeah, Mrs. Thompson, fourth grade teacher. Like, right. what? <laughs> come on, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Shout out, Miss Thompson, my fourth grade teacher. Any other, any other B two B marketing lessons from from the bear? Or do we do we do it justice? You know, I think there there is one thing, and it's but it's super specific to an episode that you have not watched yet. So there there are two episodes in season two that I think are going to be up for an Emmy. One of them is like super 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 dynamic. Like it is obviously it was like 
I don't even know if they do sweeps week anymore on network television, but like it would have been the sweeps week episode if, if that existed on Hulu. So I'm not going to talk about that one, but this other episode, it, it focuses in on Richie, the guy that we've mentioned a couple of times. He's like the manager and he's definitely, he's, he is the one who is pushing back most on all the changes that Carmi is trying to make. Fuck all this. Announcement. Listen up. Bread stays the same. Gravy stays the same. And and that this is the other cool thing about the show is that, you know, it's definitely about a restaurant and about this guy, but there's like really deep character development for a lot of the characters. Like no no one is just like around, you know, like and so you learn that the reason why Richie's pushing back so much is because he doesn't feel like he has a role in the new place. It's like the thing that he did in the old place, like it's not going to exist in Carmi's new elevated amazingness. And so he's like, I'm, you know, I'm asked out. Like I'm, you know, like, I don't know what to do. I I don't know how to contribute. And so in this episode, Carmi sends Richie to like a Michelin star restaurant to learn how to do something. All right. You want me to fork? I'll fork. I'm going to give cousin the satisfaction of coming home early. I can do my time standing on one foot. So let me get this straight. He's punishing you by making you work at the best restaurant in the world. Yep. He's punishing me for being ancillary. Great. Let me give you some purpose then. Try those properly. You see those streaks? That's bad. And, you know, through the magic of television a little bit, in this one week, Richie sort of transforms into a new person. And when I first watched the episode, I was like, eh, you know, like... They do this, right? It's a, it, there's a there's a montagey aspect of it, but but then I really sat and thought, you know, there have been times in my life where I have one conversation that really changes my perspective on things, and like I go in a completely new direction, you know, because of it. Maybe not as dramatic as they show in this episode, but it got me to thinking uh, ab- about marketing and about how, you know, like we we can cock these, like you know like the funnel and the customer journey and blah, 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 blah. But it all sort of starts with that one thing. Like there's one thing that like piques your attention. And, and if you can pull that thread with someone, you can get them to change their mind in a couple of pieces of content, a couple of posts on LinkedIn to like open their mind to like try something new and do something different. And I think as marketers, we need to remember that that, that wonder still exists like oh wow like there are things out there that i don't know and understand and maybe this person or this post will introduce me to that thing and that's why you just kind of keep trying stuff you know like because you, n- you never know what that one thing will be yeah i think that anyone who's been at a job like a year or two years you hit these sort of plateaus and sometimes you have a manager that stinks and sometimes you have a manager that's great, but I always seek the idea of like giving your audience permission for something. That's like part of the reason why we created this show is to create a show about content marketing, about all the cool shit that we love so that we could start putting it back into our existing content, which like sometimes we feel like is lame or not even sometimes, like most of the time to be like, all right, we have permission to make stuff that is cooler than the stuff that we're making. If we just start using some of the techniques that like the pros use. And I love the idea of like, giving permission to your community to go do something, to go, you know, 
not to say like, hey, go ask for a raise, but like, hey, go do this, this, and this, and then go ask for the raise because you've demonstrated that you can take your thing to the next level or whatever that is. I just, I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really understand that perspective, right? Around giving people permission, you know, to do something and try something. In my team, I try to make it so that everybody has goals that they need to achieve, like, and spend should spend 80% of their time doing. But I, I strive to give everyone 20% to, like, go and mess around, right? Like, you want to go and shadow someone who's not in this department for a day? Go for it, right? You want to, you know, like, try to write something even though you're not a writer? Go for it, right? You want to learn Canva, you know, like, just to, like, make one thing? Like, do it. Because you never know, like, what that could lead to. And you didn't ask for it. But to give you some advice that I've learned over my career, it's like, just be kind, you know, be kind to yourself. You know, like, I bet you the content that you think is like mediocre, or maybe you think it sucks. Someone's going to love it. You know, like someone's going to really love it. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't push yourself to do better and faster and stronger. But, you know, just be be kind to yourself. I think that's that's an important thing in work and in life. We we all all need to do that. That is for sure. What is your, what's your brand strategy and content strategy at Lightcast? Well, so being new as a name in the industry, but, but that's the funny thing. We're new as a name, but in fact, the two companies that got smushed together to become Lightcast both have two decades long like histories and experience in the craft. So the strategy right now is really to make people understand that Lightcast is this company that has been doing this for a really long time and that we have the most comprehensive data out there in the labor market. But more importantly, we, we have a bunch of insight about the data. So it's not like we're just like giving you things and walking away. It's like we have the opportunity to really break it down for you because we've been doing this a long time. We like the question that you have, we've probably answered it for someone else already. You know, like, so like, so that's kind of the content strategy. Content strategy is like, we've been here, Bam. We've been here, you know, like, and, and so I walked in and, and I was like, where are all the case studies? And they're like, oh, you know, they're somewhat anecdotal and we call it CS, client success, but, you know, like account managers, what, you know, uh, call different things to different companies. Like, oh, you know, like if you call Mary and Bob and Jamal and, you know, like Mariana, they'll tell you, you know, and I was like, yeah, but we need to codify these. Like we need, we need for this to be able to be shown to other people, you know, as proof, you know, that we're doing this amazing work. And so, a lot of the content plan and the content strategy right now is is just around proof points, things that we have done that no one has chronicled before. That, and then, you know, the, the labor market it is about people and about their jobs and about finding a job and about layoffs and about like these really intricate and and personal things and moments. And so we're looking for ways to talk about those things in, in a meaningful way. And, and so right now we're in the throes of developing a content strategy that's centered around a few key themes that are both in the marketplace, but also are universal human truths, like wanting to take care of your family, 
right? Like, and it's important uh, for us to be able to enter into that conversation and be in the zeitgeist because every, every, everybody has, wants, needs, or had uh, a job and is thinking about something referential to it. So we've got a lot of touch points. Now we just need to, you know, point the spotlight at, at ones uh, that are most dynamic and interesting to talk about and most meaningful to our audiences. How do you think about the ROI of content and of brand? Ooh, you know, it's tough, right? Like I've been doing this for 25 years and I feel like the conversation, it is the conversation that the least amount of people have answers to. Like no matter what room you're in and no matter whom you ask. You know, when I started, I remember I was doing event marketing uh, for Old Navy and you're like, hey, so like what's the ROI on you know, that billboard, you know, that we put up as you get onto the Bay Bridge. And I'm like, well, we can count how many cars, right, drive on the Bay Bridge every day. And I guess that'll be the number. And even though things have evolved and are obviously a lot more digital and social and more able to be computed, I still feel like we don't have a really great handle. Even houses that have multi-touch attribution, you're like, can you really tell, like, why somebody bought whatever they bought? especially in business to business where, right, there's a buyer's group, six people are making a decision. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. Like, how do you really know, like, what the journey was that they took that is both, you know, offline and online and maybe at an event and maybe they heard somebody say something uh, that sparked that interest. So I wish I had a better answer, but we're just trying to understand a couple of the pieces, right? Like for, for me, I think the most ephemeral part is the top of funnel. And that's the part that I love the most. And so every day I try to think about how can I prove, you know, to the organization that this video that I made, that this blog, you know, that we wrote, you know, that this post that we did on LinkedIn, eventually, you know, seven months later, you know, resulted in a sale. It's tricky but it goes back to, you know, like kind of the proof points and the case studies that I talked about a couple of minutes ago. If you can get somebody at Princeton or at Salesforce to say, oh, yeah, I signed this contract with Lightcast. But the first time I heard about Lightcast, so the reason that I blah, 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 you know, was because I saw your economist speak at this conference. Then, you know, so- sometimes that's how you just have to prove the ROI. Very old school. One of the things that we talked about in prep was this idea of the hero derivative model. Can you explain that? Sure. Uh, As marketers in this era where if you have social as part of your remit, you're like, oh my God, I can come up like seven, eight, nine, 12 things to say every day. I'm like, well, you could start every time from scratch Right? And you can be like, oh, well, I got to talk about the labor market again. Let's figure out what I'm going to say. Or right, you can build one thing and you can build and architect that thing to really be 50 things. And so for us at Lightcast, our tent poles or big rocks in the ocean or whatever random word you want to use are often research reports. And before I got here, I don't know if it's 100% true, but it felt like those research reports were treated like one thing. 
oh, we wrote a research report about how apprenticeships are gaining traction, you know, like, and how traditional education is blah, 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 blah. And be like, so we put that report out and then we're going to promote that report for a week and a half and then we'll do something different. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was like, that report has 27 individual charts in it. That's 24 different assets. And so that that's what the hero derivative model is. You make one big thing and and then you take that and you you I, people call it sweating the assets, right? Like you you take that one thing and like, how can this be 25 or 50 or 75 individual things by taking this quote that's in the in the report or this graph or you know this anecdote or or even what we've been doing recently is we take something that we said maybe many months ago, but is still relevant now and related to pop culture. So, you know, we're not talking about Barbie. We're talking about the bear, but like Barbie is everywhere right now. And so I just inspired my team to go out and do a blog post that referenced some gender research that we did recently to like, so Barbie had a lot of jobs, right? Like over the course of her history, right? Like how, like, is there any correlation between women in the workplace and the jobs that Barbie had and showed young women in the 40s, 50s and 60s, like you can be a pilot, right? Like, and and so, yeah, so we wrote a blog entry uh, about that, taking it back to entertainment. I, I worked at uh, Viacom, specifically at VET for a while. And how I've explained it to other people is you have your premiere of your, you know, original scripted series, but then you have the reruns and then you have the cutdowns and you have the teaser and, you know, like, and then you have, you know, like what you're going to say, you know, to the social audience about what happened in that episode. And then you're going to talk about the storyline from last season. Like all of that stuff is derivative of that one, you know, 22 minute episode that you built. We need to be thinking about all of our marketing assets like that. I 100% agree. I think that what the problem that we've got into and I've talked about this a little bit on other shows, this idea of like repurposing, which has kind of got a little like mangled in terms of like how people think about repurposing. And the point of repurposing is not to create an asset that's average and then make a bunch smaller assets. It's to create, like you're talking about, like tentpole, like seminal content that is like unique and brilliant and interesting and taking, let's say there's 17 interesting things in that piece of content and getting each of those their own little life, right? Their own little marketing budget, their own little reach, because on their own, they're interesting. And then as, as part of a report, they're interesting. And so like what we do with our shows is when we have customers who are making those types of things, we weave them into like podcast episodes or we'll have a segment where we're talking about this research report or we're, we're ask, you know, other customers and things like that. And so the idea is not just that you're creating the thing, but you're also creating discussions around it. You're talking to customers about it. You're talking to prospects about it. You're going to events and you're talking about, hey, well, in our research report, one of the key findings was blank, blank, and blank. And like that is how you can get sort of the entire team rowing in the same direction rather than like doing all of this work and then, like you said, just like dropping it and, and letting it release. I think one of the biggest myths in marketing is about like making a big launch. And I totally understand that there's big launches and that sometimes it really matters, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying that that's bad, but I'm saying we try to do this big launch thing for 
everything, make everything a big deal, but 98% of the, I'm making up the stat, like 98% of the value that's going to come from this asset is people consuming it over the course of the next like nine months. So like, don't over-engineer all of your effort on launch day when you need to figure out ways to get all of the information out over the course of a longer period of time, when it's still relevant. 100%, 100%, yeah. I, I started my career doing event marketing and, and I remember, you know, like back back then, this is like pre-internet and mobile phone ubiquity. You know, like you basically just did the event for the people who showed up at the event, you know, right. like because there was no, there was nothing, that was it. Like, but now, you know, like if you're an event marketer, like why would you program the thing just for the people who come and see your booth or come and see your whatever? Or like, there are millions of people who could see what you've done you know, like on social, on the web, on, you know, whatever else. So yeah, there's, there's so many ways that you can think about that hero derivative model. And it's, it's just about being creative. It's just about being creative. And, you know, to bring it back to something we talked about earlier in the show, just go on the extra mile, right? Like if you go the extra mile for that tentpole asset, it means that there should be five, 10, 15, 20 more things that you can pull out of it because it's just that good. Yeah. One show that we did, we sent one of our producers to an event and the the company, I believe that they had a presence at the event, although I can't remember. But either way, for the show, we're like, hey, all we have a budget for is to just send a producer and like, he's just going to walk around and like talk to people at the event and like record a bunch of stuff. And we recorded all this information. We created like a recap episode of the event, put it in the show. And then we were able to like use the footage from that to like ask future guests about like, hey, this is one thing that we heard at this event that was like from the ground floor. Do you agree or disagree? And like, that's the sort of stuff where like, it was so easy to just have a person in the field with a recorder to do that. And it created a really popular episode. There's lots of opportunities to do stuff like that. Like thinking of an event, not just as a as like you know you talk about like push versus pull content is like are you pushing to the community or are you pulling from the community it's like events are actually a better pull mechanism than they are a push mechanism and everybody treats them the exact opposite it's like actually it's a time to hear from people at the ground that you can take all those insights and give them back to your sales team it's not always an opportunity to shove your brand messaging down everybody's throat at every possible, you know, you know, opportunity to do that. So anyhow, I feel like we as marketers in aggregate, we just do, I, I can't say that we do a bad job. We could all do a significantly better job listening to our audience, you know, like, and, and whether it's, you know, the example you just gave, like doing it by, having somebody roam around a conference and ask a question or you know, like really read the comments that you're getting on social, or like you said, partnering up with your, your sales or, you know, your account management team, like what are the customers talking about? How should we be spinning up new and interesting content that is answering the questions that you're maybe getting one-on-one -on -one? because every question that has ever gotten asked has been thought of by 10, 20, a thousand other people. And so if you put it out there, it, it could be great. Like takes us all the way back to the bear, right? Like to, if you're, if you're going to do a show about a restaurant, like make sure it's great, right? Make sure that you're talking the way that the restaurant people talk, because if they feel like it's authentic, then they'll tell a friend, Hey, these people really got it right. And, he, and even if you don't 
love the story and if you don't love the whatever, like watch it because the person who put together this thing spent time and effort and energy to make it great. We have five minutes to do this thing and we're fucked. All right. Okay. Five minutes. They, they did their research. What pulls people in sometimes is just showing them that you dedicated a bunch of time and effort and energy to making it great for them. Okay, last question before we get out of here. And I really buried the lead on this one. So you, you led social media for the NBA. You've worked at uh, places like BET. You've been at really the cutting edge of some of the most popular brands in the world. Any advice for how to take that sort of popularity and brand affinity and put that into B2B? This is going to sound trite because I know other people have said it, but I truly believe it, that if you think of B2B as an abstract concept, like a building selling things to another building, then you'll never get there. Really, B2B is just humans talking to humans about buying stuff. Right, like it's the same way, you know, at the NBA, you're, you're talking to somebody else about like this amazing game, you know, like where, you know, world class athletes are putting a ball in a hoop or, you know, like like I was doing at the Gap, like you're just talking to people about performance fleece that they're going to put on to make them, you know, warm in the winter. And so if you think about B2B as you're just talking to people about things that help them solve challenges and opportunities for them, then then you start off in the right place, at least, right? And that's why I'm inspiring my team to come up with things about the labor market for Lightcast that are universal human truths. Things that everybody is like, yes, I care about that. I like, I want to talk about that. It's important to me. And so, I mean, yeah. So, so, so sort of like treat B2B like it's B2C because right. B2C it's called business to consumer, but it's really just person to person. Just talk to people like people and try to figure out what they care about and talk to them about that. Thanks, Chef. It's been a great, <laughs> been a great, been a great episode with you. We got, hopefully our regulars like this and that they'll keep coming back for more. For listeners, you go to lightcast.io and check them out. If you're in education, enterprise and staffing, economic workforce development, or real estate, go check out Lightcast, lightcast.io. JP, any, any final thoughts, anything to plug? Nope. Just watch the bear. This, yeah. this, is, a, this is a plug for you, Ian. Yeah, this is like, for me. Find, <laughs> find some time for yourself. Go I'm and ready. sit in a corner somewhere, in the, maybe in the closet or the bathroom or wherever you can find your own alone time and watch it. I'd, I'd love to stay connected and hear what you think of it. Uh, yeah, we'll have an editor's note. I'll come back in after after I watched and we'll drop it out. we'll drop it at the very end. I love it. I I can commit to that. That's that's our plan. It's just been great talking to you. It's it's so uh so fun chatting about all of all the brand stuff. I love brand stuff and I also I you know just as we're getting out of here, I think that like your role is I think this is the new role. I think that this VP of brand that encompasses like, you know, content, comms, brand, events, all this stuff. Like to me, this just feels 
where this is all heading. And so it's cool to see someone like you at, at the forefront. Oh, thanks. I think the interesting thing for me in my career is, you know, like I, I've been at these re really, really large companies before. And one of the things I was looking for in this role was going to someplace smaller so that I could bring all that stuff, you know, like under one house. And, and I think for those who are listening, if you are at a big company and you're in maybe one of these siloed departments, you, use use your own you know, like gumption, like to go and find someone in one of these other groups that should be conjoined, right? Like if you were at a smaller place and work with them, right? Because the audience deserves it, right? The audience deserves for you to be telling a cohesive story to them and not one that seems like it's coming from two completely different companies, even though it is the same company. I love it. JP, thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, sounds great. Good to see you guys. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>